Well, hey, friends, it is great to be with you. My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here. Glad you're here as we kick off a new series this week. It's complicated. If you're a guest with us today, you are in the right place. We're glad you're here. Uh, again, I also want to add my congratulations to all of our graduates, high school, college, graduate school. We've got tons uh, and probably more than we even can keep track of. So uh, congratulations to you. And if you're maybe you're out of town visiting one of our graduates, we're glad you're here uh, with us. Uh, in this series, It's Complicated, uh, we're talking about relationship status. I don't know if that's a phrase that I had in my head uh, 25 years ago, but I think we know what I mean today, right? You know, uh, I'm not on Facebook, but uh, if you go on Facebook or you sign up for social media, they're going to ask you about your relationship status. I went and looked up online. Facebook now has tons of options you can choose from for your relationship status. Some You'd recognize single, in a relationship, engaged, married, widowed, separated, divorced, in a domestic partnership, in a civil union. But they have one. They have this one relationship status. It's my favorite one. I mean, I remember just the first time somebody even told me it was an option. I was just like, that's it. That is perfect. That's the box we all should check. It's the one that says it's complicated. I love that because it just feels like no matter what, no matter which one of those other boxes you might want to check, single, engaged, married, in a relationship, widowed, separated, divorced, no matter which other box you might want to check, that box applies, doesn't it? It's complicated. I feel like everybody, no matter what's going on, I mean, we, we mean on the outside, we may try and act like it's really simple. On the outside, we may try and act like we've got it really figured out. But on the inside, we know marriage is complicated. Being engaged and dating is complicated. Divorce is complicated. Being single is complicated. Nobody ever is in sort of a relationship place where they're like, yeah, I've got this all figured out. I've got no questions left. I've got no stress about this. This all makes sense to me. None of us ever, ever get there. What I notice, though, is we often look at other people and think that's where they are, right? We say, if only my relationship status were that, then it wouldn't be complicated, you know? I know some married people thinking, if only I were single, it'd be a lot easier. I know single people thinking, if only I were married, it'd be a lot easier. If only we had that clarity, you know? I know some people that are sort of dating and sort of not, and they're like, if only we were Facebook official, it'd be a lot less complicated. But the thing is, you get there, you get to that new relationship status, and it's complicated all there, all over again. So in this series, for the next several weeks, uh, we're just going to talk about our relationships. Uh, we, we'll, we'll talk in part about different statuses, different, different ways we can be in relationship, but what you're going to discover is that along the way, we're always going to be noticing things that all of us need to learn. That, that's what always happens when you go to God's Word. Even if you're looking at God's Word about a specific topic, you always notice stuff that all of us need to learn. Uh, this week, we're going to get it started off. I, I wanna, we're going to talk some about singleness. The, the first box in the Facebook checklist, I'm single. Uh, this is the one relationship status that everybody experiences. It's the one relationship status that all of us go through. Although I, I will confess here right up front, if ever anybody could pull off life and never really experience this one, uh, it would be me. 
Uh, I probably have less experience this than anybody you'll ever meet. I, I shared a room with my brother until I was a junior in high school. I had my own room for two years. I had got roommates for the first two years of college, and I got married as a junior in college when I was 20 years old. So I'm about as close as a person can be to never having really been single. I only even had my own room for two whole years of my life, and I was, of course, living at home with my parents in high school at the time, so that doesn't really count. Um, so I get that as experience goes, um, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about here. Uh, thankfully, we've got God's Word. Um, but, um, but here's the thing. Just because singleness wasn't my experience, uh, we have to recognize it is most people's experience and it is increasing. It's the, it's the relationship status that is on the rise culturally. In 1960, in 1960, the number of adults over 25 who had never been married was 9%. In 2012, it was 21%, and today it's 25%. A quarter of adults have never been married. In fact, if you narrow the range just a little bit, 2017, the latest update of the uh, census data on this, between 25 and 45 adults, age 25 and 45, 53% of them are currently single, and 37% of them have never been married ever. They've been single their whole life. So even if that doesn't count divorce or widows, 37%. So, you know, what is that? Four out of ten almost of the people have never been married. Uh, we've never seen a generation like what's going on now. Singleness is not the rare thing it was. Uh, the marriage age, those, for those who do marry, the marriage age is going way up. Um, in 1960, uh, if I'd gotten married in 1960, I would have been normal. Uh, the median marriage age for women was 20 and for men was 23. Um, but I didn't get married in 1960. Uh, 2012, uh, the median marriage age for women was 27 and for men, 29. And, and now, uh, just a few years later, uh, for men, we finally crossed the 30 threshold. More men get married for the first time after 30 than before uh, for the first time ever. Uh, 40% of kids, 40% of children are being raised uh, by a single adult, 40% of children. So singleness is not only the one that all of us go through at least a little bit, even me, tiny bit, I guess. It's, it's not only that, it's also the, the marital status, the relationship status that is the most on the rise culturally. And yet... Uh, singleness still bears a lot of cultural burden. I, I was chatting in preparation for this sermon with some of my friends who are uh, living as single adults, and I would just kind of say, what are some of the unique pressures that you face that I would have no idea about because I got married when I was 20, and so I don't know what I'm talking about here. Uh, every single one of them mentioned first one of the unique pressures was pressure from family to get married. Every single one of them mentioned that first. Here we are, 2017, still every single one of them mentioned pressure from family to get married. A few of them mentioned the tax code, which they felt like was unfairly privileged married people. Uh, a couple of them, oh, this is one of my favorite ones, two people mentioned this one. They said they didn't like it. 
that when my wife and I go to a party, we're expected to bring one present, even though there are two of us. And when they go to a party, if they go in with a friend on a present, it's considered weird. Like, that's not fair. I said, that was very reasonable. That was very reasonable. I said, I said that wasn't fair. Um, several people mentioned this. Several people mentioned this. Um, they mentioned that um, they, uh, there was this kind of ongoing implication that they weren't really an adult until they got married. That, that as long as they were single, they hadn't really experienced maturity. A lot of people mention that. Here's what made it harder, though. Every person I talked to, 100%, said all of that was worse in the church. 100% of the people I talked to said the hardest place it was to be a single adult was in the church. They said they got less stigma and less frustration and less weird conversations anywhere else. Less at work, less hanging out with friends, less at a barbecue, less at the Y. The worst place was the church. Some of them had strong words. They said um, the church makes it feel like the only, really way, the only real way to honor God is to get married and have a family. That's what we're about. We're about families. And they said every time they heard a church use that phrase, we're about families. They always had to wonder, does that mean they're for me or not? A lot of people, uh, several of the singles I talked that uh, said it was in the church that they most felt this sense that um, you're not quite fully an adult. You haven't quite fully lived yet if you haven't gotten married or had kids or whatever. So it seems to me if we've got this sociological reality that's just growing and a human experience that all of us experience and more and more people experience for longer and longer and longer, and yet we as a church are making these people that we love feel pretty unwelcome, we, we probably need to talk about that just a little bit. And like I said, uh, I don't have much personal experience to share here. This isn't my story. Uh, but God's Word talks about it, so we're going to start there. We're just going to look a little bit at what God's Word says about our relationship status in general. It's a text, actually, where Paul is mainly talking about marriage. But it's interesting that for Paul, while he talks about marriage, you'll notice he has a ton to say to the unmarried. Uh, so I want to spend a little time with this text with you. It's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're just going to take some time here and notice how different Paul's perspective on singleness is from the perspective that I'm hearing we give off around the church. He has a totally different way of looking at it. Uh, we'll skip around a little bit, and we won't read every bit, because some of it's just about marriage. Um, and, and like I said, the, some of the stuff that's just about marriage we'll get to in future weeks. Uh, but we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1. He says, now, about the matters you, you wrote, or, or, or for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, just to understand what's happening in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to a letter that they wrote to him. And so in their letter to him, they are the ones who have said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this is them trying to understand what it means to live a chaste life. 
Uh, And Paul doesn't argue with that conclusion, but he's going to nuance it a little bit. Here's his response. Uh, Verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, I will say, we're going to talk about singleness here uh, and look at some other sections of this text, but it is worth noticing what a radical confrontation against Roman patriarchy Paul's teaching here is. I mean, we just, it's not the main point of this sermon, but man, that the Apostle Paul would say that the husband does not have authority over his own body is such a radical deconstruction and confrontation of Roman patriarchy. It is amazing. And so I will just say there's something worth celebrating. Uh, Those of us who are in Christ, we recognize the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And this mutuality between man and woman that Paul suggests here in Jesus Christ was unheard of in the ancient world. So that's not what this sermon is about, but you can't read this text without noticing just the radical mutuality of Christian relationships between men and women. All right, let's go ahead. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say all this... As a concession, not a command. His point here is, I'm not telling you 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 have to have sexual relationships in your marriage. I'm just saying, since you're probably going to anyway, rather than be led into lust, get married and respond to one another. But then he goes on in verse 7 and says the most radical thing, and this is where we really get to what we're talking about today. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What does Paul mean when he says, I wish that all of you were as I am? He says, I wish that all of you were single. I wish that all of you were choosing to live unencumbered with a marriage relationship. He goes on, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. Verse 10, to the married I give this command. He begins about a 15-verse section about marriage and divorce, which we're going to skip for now. We might have a chance to talk about it later in the series. In verse 25, though, he comes back to singleness. Now about the unmarried. I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Again, fascinating thing to notice here. Paul here is distinguishing between when he's giving a direct command from Jesus that he's learned or when he's giving his own theological opinion, his best pastoral judgment. I love that he's just frank enough to define the difference there. So here is Paul's pastoral judgment for people who are single. Because of this present crisis, I think it is good for a man, and we'll see he means this to apply to men and women, 
to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Then do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin, this is how he's going to refer to unmarried women, marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from this. I think never has a uh, verse of Scripture created more risk for a pastor to make bad jokes than verse 28, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from this. So any and all jokes that could be made rooted in that verse, I will resist. Okay, moving right on. Um, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if if they were not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Here's his argument. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. This observation by Paul, I just think is remarkably pragmatic and pastoral. And I appreciate that about Paul. He's just acknowledging that if you get married, you necessarily have to be concerned about the needs of another. That's the commitment that you make. But for the person who has chosen singleness or for the person who is single, they, can, they have the opportunity to have a central focus on the affairs of God. He goes on and applies the same principle to women. An unmarried woman or a virgin is considered is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. These two descriptions of the difference between singleness and marriage, in them we learn a little bit about marriage, right? We learn that if you're married, and some of you are, and if you are, you ought to be concerned about the needs of your spouse. Paul's saying that. That is expected of those of us who are married. To pay attention and care about the needs of our spouse. But we also learn that there is a unique pastoral opportunity for singleness that Paul says is not just acceptable, but deeply desirable. Single people, if you think the grass is always greener on the other side of the marriage fence, Paul would say it just isn't so. Marriage brings with it its own set of problems, its own set of worries, its own set of troubles. And Paul actually counsels that most of us should seek to avoid those troubles. He goes on, verse 35, I'm I'm saying this for your own good. This is not to restrict you. He's clear. If you want to get married, get married. It's not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He wraps up with this. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, again, he's using virgin here to refer to unmarried women, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should marry. 
But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion and has control over his own will, who has made up his mind not to marry, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries does right, and he who does not marry does better. It's fascinating to me that in a church built on Scripture, on, on, on this Scripture, in, in, in a church like ours, we would still have developed patterns of life that make single people feel judged and unwelcome. How could we have done such a thing? When Paul is so clear, marriage, a concession to our desires, good and holy and honorable as it is, is not, in Paul's mind, the only way to live a fully human life. How could we have given that impression? Now, I just want to be clear. If this is the only thing you've ever read, about, read from Paul, maybe you're new to this, which is great. You're glad you're here. If, you've, if this is the only thing you've ever read from Paul about marriage and singleness, I need you to know Paul is not anti-marriage. Even in this text and in others, he'll talk about the beauty of marriage and the importance of marriage and the permanence of marriage. Paul isn't anti-marriage, and I'm not anti-marriage. But here's the thing. As much as Paul is for marriage, and you go read Ephesians, he talks about the beauty of marriage. As much as he is for marriage, he's actually for singleness even more. Paul, Paul would say, to summarize Paul, you might say, marriage is fantastic. But for those who can do it, singleness is even better, Paul would say. A few observations rooted in this text and in Paul's argument. Uh, the first thing is this, uh, maybe a, a word to those of you who are single. Um, I'm just so sorry if you have felt marginalized by the church. I'm so sorry if you felt marginalized by this church. I was reading this text and having these conversations. I found myself thinking back through our marketing and our advertising. Have we done things that have made single people feel unwelcome? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Probably it's yes. And I'm real sorry about that. And we'll try to do better. I think Paul demands that we have to do better. That we've got to be clear that singleness is a a fully human way to live. You know, I, I know that you know, some people act like married people who so have, have somehow had a fuller range of human experiences, as if if you're single, you've only lived half a human life. But, but this is absolutely not the case. I just found myself thinking, surely by being married, there are some experiences I've had that a single person hasn't had. But I can list dozens of experiences that single people have had that I've never had because I've never been a single adult. On top of that, our notion of what it means to be human can't be reduced to some human experience bingo card and everybody's trying to fill up their card and check off, okay, I've done the single thing, I've done the married thing, I've had a couple kids, okay, now I've lived a full human life and I can win the prize. That kind of um, marriage-focused or family-focused perspective, it, it isn't biblical. I mean, Paul's so clear. It's, in fact, unbiblical. And it's destructive to our single brothers and sisters. It, it belittles people 
who are living glorious, full lives. Uh, The implication we give that somehow marriage is the only way to really kind of check off the human experience bingo, it, it creates social pressure on people who enter marriages unready and ill-advisedly because of family pressures or church pressures or community pressures that, that somehow, unless they get married, they aren't really an adult. They aren't really making it, you know. So I would just say to single people, I'm sorry that we've done that. We abandoned the teaching of Scripture when we did that because God's Word's so clear. And if you're single here today, you need to know you are fully human now. You're not half a person waiting for the other half, you know. Uh, This is not your life in waiting. You're not waiting to make a difference. And I would just say, I mean, I don't know, Jesus was single, right? Paul was single. Surely that's enough for us to say this is a fully human way to be. And Paul says that your singleness is not just an okay way to be, that it's actually a ministerial advantage. And some of you I see living that out. I see some of you volunteering and serving and leading in ways that express your unencumberedness. I mean, Paul's words, I see so many of you just embodying Paul's words where he says, the one who is married has to concern themselves with the affairs of the world, but the one who is single can concern themselves solely with the affairs of God. I see so many of you living that out, and I'm so grateful for that model. And I would just urge you to continue to leverage that ministerial capacity, invest in community, adopt yourself into the family of God. If you want to date, fine. If you don't want to date, fine. But don't let anybody in the world or anybody in the church tell you that your worth is determined by whether or not you've got somebody, by whether or not your relationship with status on Facebook changes. Your worth is determined by Christ. And according to the Apostle Paul, your singleness, whether it's for a season or whether it's for your whole life, your singleness is an asset to you and to God's kingdom. Same text, a couple observations about what it might mean for the whole church. If we were to take Paul's words seriously, what it might mean for us. Well, I think one thing it would mean is we would just have to decide to stop making single people feel left out and shut out and awkward. Somebody once told me a thing that I've tried to do. I don't know if it makes a huge difference, but it does in my mind anyway. Uh, It was a friend of mine who was a single adult leading the church, fantastic leader, And she suggested to me that when I was putting up chairs at tables for church events, whenever possible, I should put an odd number there. Just as a symbolic reminder that people show up in all kinds of numbers. And we're not just trying to fill things up with couples. And she just talked about how if she shows up at a table, it's got eight chairs, and there's six people sitting at it. She said, I actually feel some awkwardness sitting down, like I'm going to break up a couple. I don't know if everybody feels that way, and I'm not saying that's the end of the world, but it just reminded me that we as a church, we can do little things to make sure our single friends know they are welcome. Uh, Somebody else said to me, if all married people do is go on double dates, 
then they never figure out a way to include single people in their social lives. And I, I never thought of that. That kind of hit me. We, so I think that's one thing Paul would say, is we've got to start acting like we believe what Paul wrote, that being single is a fully human, God-honoring way to live, and, and we just got to act like that and live like that. And the flip side of that, it, it, so we're going to stop doing things, we're going to stop ostracizing people and making them feel like weird or whatever. On the flip side of that is I think we as a church can probably do a better job strategically including single people in our lives, recognizing that our, the family we have as God's family is more important to us than the family we have through natural kinship. You know, we could do that, right? We, could, we actually could live in such a way that the family we have through God's family is more important to us than the family we have through natural kinship. We were talking about this in our uh, preaching team. We've got four or five of us that uh, plan and write sermons together. And uh, I was kind of mentioning that principle. Uh, and one of the members of our preaching team, oh, she's also one of our graduates, now Dr. Nikki Hunt. All right, way to go, Nikki. All right, so one of the members of our preaching team, now Dr. Nikki Hunt, she said that if I was going to talk about that, if I was going to talk about recognizing that our family is bigger than our natural family, I needed to hear the story of Betty Riddle. I never knew Betty Riddle. Some of you did. Uh, I got to learn the story of Betty uh, Riddle by talking to the Gray family. Here's what they had to say about Betty. Uh, she lived her whole life as a single person. She was a great servant of the church. She embodied what Paul taught, that those who are single have greater capacity to focus on the ministry of the church. She taught children in this church for decades. She won an award for her service at the village across the street. She would sit with people and read the Bible with them and pray for them. She was a fantastic, complete person. Though she was single, she knew that that was no impediment to her full humanity and her full living before God. But the part of the story that I want to draw your attention to uh, is about Betty's family. Now, Betty's natural family, the last member of her natural family, passed away in 1982. And Betty lives another 25 years. But she did not live those 25 years without family. In fact, she lived those 25 years with a very intentional family. And the reason she did that is because of you all. Like I say, I sat down with Helen Gray and talked about her and Bernie and the way their family related to Betty. She mentioned that since 1982 until Betty's death in 2007, Betty was with the Gray family for everybody's birthday, including hers, and every Thanksgiving, and every Christmas. That's amazing. I asked Helen, I said, how many family events do you think you included Betty in over those 25 years? In her humility, she said, oh, not very many. I said, well, was it more than 100? And she said, oh, well, it was way more than 100. And I had to explain to her, that's many. That's very many. 
What I discovered as I pulled the story out was that they adopted Betty Riddle. Betty had been Helen's third grade Sunday school teacher. And so Helen knew what Betty had done for her, and when it was Helen's turn, she wanted to do the same for Betty. She said Betty had lots of friends in this church. She always had somebody to sit with on a Sunday morning, but she also knew that if she ever had trouble finding someone to sit with, that the Gray family always saved a spot in their pew for Betty Riddle. They helped her with chores. Helen mentioned dozens and dozens of things. Took her to doctor's appointments. Helen was always insisting, we didn't really do much for her. We didn't really do much for her. And I kept having to say, do you think you took her to doctor's appointments for more than 20 straight years every time she needed to go to the doctor? She said, well, probably. I said, I think that counts. I think that counts. Helen, in her attempt to insist that what they had done was not remarkable, she concluded with this comment. She said, you don't understand. This wasn't a big deal. She was part of our family. That is what the church must do. Stories like that, we must make sure that stories like that are not rare. In fact, quite to the contrary, we must make sure that stories like that become common. My invitation to you, church, would be this simple. Because of God's adoption, our membership in our spiritual family can truly be more real to us than our membership in our families of natural kinship. And if that is the case, then we can transcend the divisions that happen between married people and single people and divorced people and widowed people. And instead, we can recognize that our unity as brothers and sisters is greater than our difference of the relational status we have on Facebook. And so I would urge you, whether you're single or married or everywhere in between, reinvest in the relationships of the church. Don't miss Sunday school quite as often. Look for people who are lonely. Invite them out to dinner. Build a relationship. If you're single, build a relationship with people who are married. If you're married, build relationships with people who are single. Begin to ask and begin to invite practices of living that extend familial love well beyond the limits of natural kinship. And I'm convinced if we do this, it won't make things less complicated. It's always going to be complicated. But it will make things more Christ-like. And it turns out all of us can embody the love of Christ, whether we're single or married, for we are all of us children of the same Father. Let's pray. Gracious God, I really do ask that you would, where repentance is needed, you would help us to repent from practices that have privileged some over another or stigmatized some. 
And if you would just really raise us up, God, as a church that welcomes all people and demonstrates with our lives that all of your children are welcome and included and fully a part of this body. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.